Good morning, Christ Central Church. Hope you all had a great Christmas with your friends and family. Uh, my name is Josh Kim. I'm one of the assistant pastors here at Christ Central. And whether you are a regular attendee this morning or a guest with us, um, we're glad that God has brought you here to worship with us this morning. We like to say we are the people of the way. And I'm not talking about the Mandalorian way. I'm talking about the way of the cross, as we were reminded through our creed this morning, meaning your presence here this morning, whether you're in person or online, is not an accident. We believe that God is at work in bringing you here on this last Sunday of the year 2020 to worship our God together in this place for a particular reason in times such as this. And this morning, we conclude our short series called Cinematic Christmas, and you may be wondering, well, Pastor Josh, it was, Christmas was a couple of days ago, so why are you still talking about Christmas today? But as you could tell by the title of the message, it's, we're going to talk about the life after Christmas. Now what? Life after Christmas that you and I celebrated. And as you can see, also the movie that we're going to talk about in light of the text today is Home Alone, a classic Christmas movie that was first released in 1990s. Can you imagine that? Can you even think far back, 1990s? And some of you were not even born back then. And, uh, but this is one of the most classic Christmas movies of our time. It still plays in the cable TVs, as well as you could get it on demand, whatever maybe that you watch it. It brings so much of the memories, the smiles, the laughter, and even some Christmas lessons along the way. And my family had a chance to watch it, actually introduce it to my son, who never I wasn't even born back then, right? Um, when the first movie came out, I actually watched it in the country that I grew up in. Uh, I immigrated to the States in the 1993, so this came in the 90s. So uh, when I first watched it, I thought this is what every single American Christmas was like. A right? large family living in a nice house with a large lawn, huge family, and going to Paris for vacation. I thought that was what everybody did in the States. And soon I realized when I immigrated here, that's not the case. So in some sense, it does picture a false picture of Christmas as you and I have come to experience, especially this day uh, in the COVID-19 era. But the movie also gives you a glimpse of some of the shared values that you and I experience. That's why the movie was not only a box office hit in the US, but the worldwide. It was one of the most popular movies that people watched and still long to watch today. And along with its comedic elements, as well as um, different values that cut across the culture that we could all relate to, there's also a sense of fear that can be shared among all of us that this movie addresses that we all can identify with. And that is, again, the title of the movie shares being home alone left alone, or being forgotten, or being by yourself during Christmas time. And I don't know about you, but we had a great Christmas as well. But the day after Christmas often feels like the movie Home Alone. Perhaps a lot of us, even those who place our faith in Christ, can look very similar to the culture around us. In many ways, we're bought in into getting the gifts, festivities, 
all that good stuff. And I'm not saying those are bad stuff at all. Good things about Christmas tradition, but it is true that oftentimes Christians, as well as non-Christians, both celebrate Christmas. And it's really hard to set apart what Christians celebrate during the season of Advent, the four weeks leading up to Christmas, as well as non-Christians that love to celebrate Christmas. I get cards from my Christian, Christmas, uh, Christian friends during Christmas Day. I also get cards from my non-Christian friends on Christmas Day. Same thing with gifts, same thing with the celebrations, the parade and all that stuff, maybe we all similarly share the experience of Christmas. But the life after Christmas on the 26th is what should set apart those who place our faith in Christ and those who do not. Because although our life may look very similar, before Christmas, we may have celebrated like everybody else. What sets us apart, those who truly believe in Christmas promise, is what happens the day after Christmas celebration. After all the festivities, all the presents, all the good feelings that you and I conjure up during this time fade away. The question that we ought to answer is, what hope do you hold on to in the life after Christmas? Because honestly, quite honestly, 25th brings so much joy and celebration and a day off at that. But the 26th is almost the same as the day before. What I mean is, it's not like just because we celebrated Christmas, our circumstances do not change overnight. It's not like magically on the 26th morning, the COVID-19 disappears. It's not magically on 26th, all my personal problems fade away. It's not like on the 26th, my relationship with my family, my friends are restored to full joy. Oftentimes we struggle with the same struggle and sometimes we feel the effects of the celebration mood fading away and finding that there's nothing that has changed much after Christmas. So the question I want us to delve into as we look at this text and thinking about this movie as our background is, what hope are we as followers of Christ, those who profess their faith in Christ, and if you're not a follower of Christ this morning, what hope do Christians and Christ's followers, what hope does Christ offer us this morning as we look to a life after Christmas. And the three things that this text reminds us and the hope that we could find in this truth on the life after Christmas, and they are, Jesus is the man. Jesus is God. And Jesus is also the God-man. And three things we're going to look at. And the first thing we're going to look at is that Jesus is the man. Jesus is man. In the movie Home Alone, what makes the scary proposition of this movie, the background of the movie, it can be traumatizing is the fact that a child that is left behind, who not only is left behind, but who also has to defend his house against these two burglars, is eight-year-old boy. And he is left alone to do so. When we get to chapter two on this portion of our story today, the story is on the heels of the infancy narrative of Christ. And now we talk about the youth, the 12-year-old Christ 
in this text. And this is actually only place in the gospel stories. In all four books of the gospel, where the youth story of Christ is talked about. And the story begins with every parent's nightmare, a lost child. In verse 41, it says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom, and they go up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is situated high upon the mountains. And when the feast has ended and they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, in verse 44, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. This has a very similar connotations of the movie. If you watch the movie, what happens is Kevin, the main character of the movie, gets in trouble the night before. In fact, the Jesus doesn't get in trouble here, and then he's forgotten. The entire family rushes out to catch the plane, and in the midst of the flight, mom realizes she forgot Kevin. And today's narrative gives us the similar setting in that that's familiar for Jewish audience. It's like a Jewish version of Home Alone. They went up to Jerusalem, and because they travel in the band of people with their cousins, their families, to protect themselves, they thought, okay, Jesus must be among my family coming along with them. And they didn't think about it for a couple of days. And they realized, finally, wow, my son is missing. Jesus is missing. So they go back looking for him. And what this beginning part of the story is highlighting is something that we often forget about who Christ is. What this story, the details about him being the, in, in his youth, as well as being in a family, getting lost in this family, is to highlight the full humanity of Christ. Jesus is the man. Jesus is a man. When we celebrate it during Advent, it's just that fact. Pastor Mari beautifully highlighted the fact that the importance of Christmas is not just only festivities that happens, but the fact of incarnation, a fancy word to say that Jesus, the second person of Godhead, took on full humanity. And that's the key foundation of our belief and our hope during Christmas season. The fact that Christ, the Son of God, became human to walk with us. And what better way to show us than to show us the infancy narrative of the birth of Christ is now as well as the story of childhood of Christ. And that's why in verse 20, uh, 52, it concludes this narrative by saying this, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Again, to emphasize the fact that Jesus had to grow and he's growing as any other human will grow. And again, what Luke, the gospel writer, is emphasizing for us as we think about this great ministry of Christ that is about to happen, the great sacrifice of Christ that is about to happen, is the fact that God, the second person of Trinity, became man to walk with us. And why is this so important for us today? Why does that fact give us hope, a life after Christmas? Because if Christ wasn't a human being, as we learned last week and throughout this season, he cannot solve our sin problem. This is what one theologian said about the importance of Jesus being a man. There is a passage in Leviticus 17.11 that tells us that it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In order for our sins to be covered, blood must be shed. 
But if God is an invisible spirit, how can he shed blood? And if he can shed blood, how can atonement be made? Meaning, how can he pay for the sacrifice for our sins? And the theologian says the incarnation is the answer. Jesus had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Indeed, Jesus was born to die, to live again, that you and I might find life in him. Again, if Jesus did not take on the human flesh, like John 1.14 tells us, if he is not born in a manger to walk, to die, to rise again, our sins cannot be atoned for. Our sin cannot be paid for and forgiven. The reason for hope for you and I this morning, a life after Christmas, is the fact that he came. He actually came. And he died. And he lived as fully human so you and I can now have this life eternal in Christ as we place our faith in God who came and walked with us. You know, in the movie Home Alone, as we watch this main character, Kevin, who is seen as this cute but annoying and bratty, self-centered, often forgotten child, what we find in this whole story is this child is growing in his Valuing his family as he embraces his neighbor, the movie hits at home for us because the child grows throughout the movie. And you know what Luke does in the story of Christ as Christ is left home alone in the temple is to show us that Jesus grew and never forget the fact. As a child growing in this family from Nazareth, in the line of David that was promised, in a humble yet obedient Jewish family, Christ had infancy. He had youth. And as Hebrew writer reminds us in chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is able in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Why? Because he walked on earth. He took on the flesh. That means his story means more than festivities to us. That means the story of Christmas must mean more to us than just a celebration of gift-giving and a vacation that extends into New Year's. That also means for children, if you're listening at home or if you're sitting here, that means he knows you. He sees you. That means for teenagers, he knows your struggle even better than you could ever imagine possible. That means your parents cannot understand, but Christ can, God can. And if, if he knows you deeper than your friends could ever do. And this story, this message, this whole thing that we do on Sunday, it matters because God knows you and God walks with us. And this gospel story is for all of us as he walks with us, to know us, so he dies, rises again, and that is our hope. That is the way of the cross. That is the hope of Christ's followers for life after Christmas. But as you know, our hope is not only in the fact that Jesus is the man, the full humanity that dwells within Christ, 
But we also have hope because Jesus is also God, the second person of Trinity. The second reason why we could have hope in the life after Christmas is because Christ, Jesus, is God, the second person of humanity, of, of uh, triune God, second person of triune God. What is amazing about the movie Home Alone is Kevin, who is only eight-year-old boy, displays wisdom beyond years. If you watch the movie, he doesn't act like eight-year-old boy, right? There's a classic scene in the movie where he jumps on the bed, and in one scene he pretends and he acts like a little child. On the other scene that he gets up and he gets his father's aftershave and he puts on his face almost to show that here's an eight-year-old boy who should be eight, but he displays, he tries to be like this adult. But ultimately, this eight-year-old boy child is able to display wisdom beyond years and is able to outsmart the burglars that are trying to rob his house. And similarly to that story, what we see in this story of the gospel is boy Jesus is someone with great intellect and great wisdom. In his response and interaction with the teachers, we see that he's displaying wisdom beyond his years, commonly known for 12-year-old boys at the time. And that's what we find in verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in a great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Friends, this story is merely about a story of a boy genius who is given a superior intelligence. It's not about a 12-year-old boy who is about to be a Harvard graduate. This is about Christ, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, displaying who he is, not only to his earthly parents, but to us. Now, the scholars debate based on this original language, the construction of what Jesus really means by, did you not know that I must be my father's house? If you have a physical copy of the Bible, you can see a uh, footnote there. And there's different translations of what that means. Some people say Jesus replies back by saying, do you not know that I have to be about my father's business? But I do think what the ESV, the version that we read, gives us a good translation of what it means. What he's saying is, I must be in my father's house. This 12-year-old boy, as in the eyes of people, displays this uncanny bond, this uncommon bond, this deep bond with God the Father and says, he is my father. I must be in this house. And later on, we see in the Gospels, particularly in John, when he says, my father has many rooms in his house, referring to heaven. And again, talking about highlighting his sonship with God, highlighting the fact that he is, in fact, the second person of Trinity. The story that we read today is not merely about a boy genius. Yes, he is incarnate. He is fully human. But this story also reminds us that he is fully God, the fully God as a second person of triune God himself. And friends, Herein lies the gospel truth and hope for those who place our faith in him. C.S. Lewis once said, if Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, 
or the Lord. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. A child who proclaims he is the son of God, very God himself, is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. And what the Luke, the gospel writer, reminds us through this story is, is in fact, he is the Lord. He is not only fully human, but here he displays that he is fully God. Jesus' declaration here shows that Christmas doesn't end with just festivities. It just not ends with God, uh, human-made celebration. What Christ's declaration gives us, pictures for us today, as we look at this story, is that Christmas is about God himself coming to us. The word of the Lord becoming flesh. He is who he is. He was present before you were born. He knows you. He was with God in creation. He is the Alpha, the beginning, and the Omega, the end. And grasp this if you can. What Christmas reminds us is God. Here is God who is not distant from us. He cares for us. Here is God who actually cares for you and I, who loves us, who isn't done with us, who won't leave us or be separated from us. This Christmas reminds us that he will come from heaven's heights to be with his own for the sake of his glory. And church, again, that's a reminder of God's grace for us, and that's the hope that he could hold on to that this is what Christmas is all about, that you and I get to be in this continuation of the story, that it's not a festivities that just end on the Christmas morning, but because he came to die and rose again, this God who took on humanity, you and I get to participate in the story of Christ and testify his goodness in our lives. He is the good father, just like we sang, who loves us to die on the cross, who sent his son to die on the cross. And this story is a continuation of what it means to be in his family. And then when you place your faith in him, you get to also be fellow heirs, to be in your father's house. Not just on Christmas morning, not just one moment, but perpetual, eternal rest, everlasting home is our home. Because now in Christ, we could cry, Abba, Father. That's what it means that Christ is fully God for us. You know, in the movie Home Alone, although Kevin, a child, displays this outstanding wisdom, planning and execution that perhaps a lot of us should learn, but we also find out that he's still a young boy at the end, after all, don't we not? Kevin, despite all his cunning tricks, and all the, the punishment he does upon the burglars, and I actually think it's pretty excessive if you think about it. One of those things knocks you out for a while, but to have all those things, it's incredible, right? Anyway, besides all these things that he puts all these burglars go through, at the end, at the end, he still gets caught by these burglars. And what does he need is he needs a rescue from a neighbor that comes to him. And this is where this illustration falls apart. Because what we see in this story is that Jesus does not need any rescue, right? He's not forgotten, and he's not left behind out of control. Did you read that throughout the story that we read? 
He stays behind. And he is in the presence of God's house. He is fully in control. Never once the parents come and Jesus says, all right, you failed as a parent, right? Why didn't you find me earlier? Like never once does he, he says, hey, uh, you forgot about me. You, like, remember that's your duty? Like as earthly parents, you got to take care of me, you know? Like I was dying, I was starving. Never once he says that. Rather, he turns the question around and says, didn't you know that I would have to be here? Doesn't that make sense to you? Not once is he crying out for rescue and gets mad at his parents for their negligence. Again, this story reminds us that Jesus is in fully control. Rather than needing a rescue, he is here to rescue. Rather than needing someone to come and scoop him up out of danger, he will come to us in our danger to rescue us. And that's our hope. For those who place our faith in this incarnate God-man, our rescue and hope is not in the presence, the time of, the family vacations, the vaccines, all great. But as many of us are home alone, away from what we would consider normal during this time, may we never forget that no matter what circumstances you and I are in place today, our God came to us. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Think about it, right? We are separated physically today. Many of us are not here. We can't be. But we can still gather to worship. Why? Because the word of the Lord, the very presence of God, comes to us. Therefore, when two or more are gathering in His name, His presence is there. Even though we are physically apart, we could be spiritually together because our God is our rescuer, deliverer, and He came to us. And if you have no reason to hope this morning, that is enough for us to hope in for the life after Christmas. And finally, not only do we have hope in the life after Christmas because Jesus is the man, he's also the God, the second person of triune God, but also we see this fully God and fully man coming together in Christ, Jesus, the God-man. You know, one story that gets often forgotten, and I forgot about this too, when you read or watch Home Alone, even though you didn't watch the movie, like, the movie title kind of gives it away, right? The child, and then the picture of the child gives it away, right? He's left alone. And what's going to happen at the end? He's going to be found at the end. Anyway, what's get forgotten about this story, the movie, is the journey of the mother. We see Kate, Kevin's mother, doing everything she can do, as any mother would be, to make it home. And she runs into all kinds of barriers, whether it's flight cancellations, flights, the snow, and all the stuff may be, ups and downs, emotions going everywhere, and many parents can identify with anxiety and regret and fear. And as we watch her walk through this, and you can identify with so much, wondering like what could have been different. And of course, the movie ends with the ups and downs and through the mixture of events, but she makes it home. She makes it home right before her family comes home, right? At the right time, at the right moment to have this special moment with a baby boy at the right time. The mystery of Christ being both fully God and fully man is something that many in the history 
And many in scholarship, and many in, in any, many in the world try to understand and unpack. There has been debates about how can this be? How can fully God and fully human can exist at the same time? There have been many councils, many heresies that rose at, the, at this profound mystery that we see today. And there are a few examples of isms out there that we as pastors have to spend many, many hours learning about it, writing about it, to defend it, to research it, memorize it, be tested on it, to tell you about it, and to tell you don't worry about it because the scripture says so. And here are some of them. Um, there is heresy called Docetism, which denies the humanity of Christ, basically saying that he was fully God, but he cannot be fully man. It was actually rejected at the first council um, of Nicaea in 325. There's Arianism, another ism called Arianism, meaning Christ Jesus was created by God, begotten by God. He was actually not fully God in the beginning, but begotten, made by God. And a popular book, Da Vinci Code, came out of this as heresy. Again, there's no ground for it to stand. If you actually read debunking the Da Vinci Code, you realize it's full of lies. There's something called adoptionism, where it says Jesus was a child, as you see, but he was adopted by God the Father, and now that's who he is. Again, it does not stand. There's something called Nestorianism. There's two distinct persons of Christ. One God, one man, separate. Again, that's not what we see Bible is teaching. And you don't need to remember all that. And I'm not showing you all that to tell you I went to seminary. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm telling you all those isms have been done before, studied before, debated before, all over the place. And all these things that come out today, such as the Vinci Code, it's nothing new. It's nothing new under the sun. It's not like the church has been hiding these things for a while and all of a sudden, boom, wow, church, you've been lying all this time. Look at all these things. No, it's not that. It's been there, done that, debated, fought against, defended for a long time. And every effort, every possible effort to disprove this mystery that Jesus is fully God and fully man, as much as many people have tried to discredit that, time and time again, it was found to be false. Because as we see from the scripture, the Bible is one of the most well-studied, well-defended. Thousands of PhDs have been come out of this. And it's a testimony that has been tried again and again and again. And especially that's evident in the book of Luke. Because if you see the Gospel of Luke in the beginning, the Gospel writer Luke, what he does is he compiles all the evidences and he tells us, I do this so that you may have certainty of the things that have been told to you. Again, what Luke is telling us is this testimony, this history of the Bible, of who Christ is, the fully man and fully God, is true. And there's testimonies upon testimonies, and the entire history of our conviction, faith, hope is wrapped in the fact that Christ is fully man and fully God. And the question is, how does that work? I get that there's isms, but how does that really work? And here's what the Paul, Apostle Paul, the greatest theologian ever lived, says about this mystery. He says, it is a mystery. It is beyond our understanding. Even Paul, who probably saw and understood more than many of us will ever say, says there's no way to describe this. It's a mystery at that. 
And here in Mary's response to all the events that happens, and many more for sure that's not recorded by Luke here, gives us a glimpse of what this mystery means for us as well today. Notice what it says in verse 50. And they did not, and it's talking about Joseph and Mary, understand the saying that he spoke to them. In verse 51 it says, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. This God-man was. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. You know, during Christmas, there's one song that drives all the pastors crazy. We love all the Christmas songs and all that stuff, but there's one song that, that makes us go crazy because this song has theological flaws all over the place. And the song that we talk about is, Mary, Did You Know? And the song goes something like this. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you deliver will soon deliver. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? And again and again, and the chorus goes like, Mary, did you know? Mary, did you know? And many people have covered this great song, but it drives us crazy. You know why? Because Bible says Mary knew, right? Because the angel showed up and said, hey, Mary, what's, you know what's going to happen? Let me tell you what's going to happen. The child you're carrying is Messiah, right? So Mary knew. Of course Mary knew. And if you study the Old Testament, you can't see a glimpse of what Messiah will do. So it drives us crazy because this song is so heretical. Mary absolutely knew. It's not like Mary got pregnant and was like, oops, I had no idea. It doesn't happen like that. Bible tells us it's not that. Mary knew exactly what was going to happen. But let me give her this, right? Let me give song some grace. Mary also fully doesn't understand how this mystery works. This grace of God, even as a physical earthly mother who carries Christ, doesn't fully get it, right? But here's what's important for Mary and what we see uh, Mary do. She treasures up these things in her heart, ponders them, remembers them. Yes, Mary fully doesn't get it. Joseph either. But that did not hinder them from fully obeying God's commands. That did not stop Mary from carrying this God-man in her tomb. The fact that she fully doesn't understand did not stop Joseph from believing the words of angel Gabriel and marrying Mary. And this incident doesn't stop Jesus' earthly parents again from embracing him, taking him home, and also pondering, treasuring all that happened in the life with Christ. Friends, what we were reminded this morning is our knowledge doesn't equate obedience. Our knowledge does not equal obedience. Rather, our humility, your humble submission to who God is, equals obedience. I think we often have this attitude, prove me wrong and I'll give in, rather than I'll follow you because who you are. And again, Luke says the purpose of the gospel that he's writing in chapter 1, verse 4, says you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Yes, he says, I will tell you this historical truth I'm testifying to you through my thorough research. But the faith, hope, doesn't come from knowledge alone. It comes from above. Think about that for a second. What is faith? Yes, we ought to have the reason for the hope that you have. 
Again, I share with you the historicity of the scripture, time and time again, how all the isms out there were brought up against scripture and was discredited. The scripture, the Bible, the word of God is most tested, most reliable, most solid evidence, most trusted testif- uh, testimony of who Christ is. But that insight, that highlight, that, that reason alone does not equal faith. It gives us reason for the hope. But the hope, our faith, is rooted in, not in our knowledge, understanding. But our faith is rooted in knowing who God is. As we see and learn and experience the power of God in his word. You see, in the scripture, Abraham is credited for his faith in Hebrews. It's not that he reasoned biologically, scientifically, conceptually, that Isaac would come back to him, the Bible says. Rather, it says he believed God who is and was and will always be someone who loves him. And he believed in God's promise, his covenant, that through Isaac, the many nations will be blessed. That's faith, church. Our faith and our hope in the life after Christmas, is not fully understanding why everything happens in our life today. Not being fully explaining the mystery of God, man of Christ. But our hope lies in the fact that we can, in our life today, live and treasure how God works in our life, mysteriously. Because our life with Christ is full of up and downs, mysteries and challenges, but our hope, our unfading hope in this God-man somehow, in some way, will carry out the work to its completion, meaning he who began a good work in us, the scripture reminds us that he will complete it. Despite our failures, our struggles to obey, despite our sin, he will do it. And that's the reason for hope. And that's the reason for grace. And that's how we embrace life after Christmas Because the Son of Man, God himself, came to take on human flesh, to die and rise again, to be in our lives. So despite the craziness that you and I may go through in our lives, that we could have hope in what he's doing in and through us. It's been a very tiring month for my family. And many of you know actually what has happened to us this past month. Um, and if you don't know, we actually had a house fire. Um, we had a box of ash that was left after a night of fire pit, and then the box of ash caught fire next to the firewood. And it basically burned our garage, our living quarters upstairs a little bit. My wife's car is totaled. And um, I know some of you probably have experience with this, but watching your house burning brings trauma, right? It was not a fun sight, and my son had to watch that as well. It was very traumatizing for us. And thankfully, my in-laws and I were able to put out the fire, more like my in-laws did. Um, And we're dealing with all the after effects, the smoke, the smell, and all the stuff. And not to mention, and this is where it gets more, more crazy for us. A couple weeks ago, we finally thought, okay, that's behind us. In the middle of the night, one of my faucets came loose, and my bathroom flooded. I know, right? It's like fire damage, water damage. What am I supposed to do with this? And uh, we have a hole in our ceiling now where it's water leaked, and there's lots of lots of damage to the house. But thankfully, we're home still, 
And thank you for many of you that care for us, that pray for us, and our staff that gave me some time off to rest and to factor in all this. But I know it's not, in, in light of all the stuff that's happening in our world today, it, it's, it's not a big deal, right? But still, the, the trauma of the fire and trauma of the water damage still plays in your heart, especially with to our family. And I don't know about you, but sometimes the first question that we have when things like this happen to us is, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening? And once you move on from that, you wonder, like, why would God let this happen to us? And you wonder, like, why would this be allowed to happen to our family? What have we done wrong? Right? That's the thoughts that come to your mind. And also you think about, what could I have done better? What can I do better to mitigate this in the future? What should I have done to not put my family in all these things? And, you know, there are so many reasons why this happened. And I could tell you all about it because I have to write reports on it. Lots of insurance adjusters, all the stuff. I have to tell them exactly what happened because I have to file a report. And I have a report from the fire department that tells me what I did. So there is physical, historical facts that tell me what happened. And also, when people ask me what happened, I repeat the same story, right? So I know exactly what happened. But at the same time, I don't know why it happened. How could this happen at this time? Not only how could this happen to me, but why was my family spared in light of all that happened? It is a mystery to us. And in the midst of all this, I remember uh, Pastor Brown and uh, uh, Kelly came to us on the day the fire happened. And then they sat with us, they bought us meals, and um, they just put their arms around us. And one thing I still remember to this day, when uh, our first lady, Kelly, embraced me and just told me this, looked in my eyes and said, Brother Josh, you just need to sit in God's grace for a while and just wait on him. And I was like, yeah, that's right, of course, I'll do that. Um, but man, that's easier said than done, guys. Honestly, it took me this entire month. Well, actually, maybe I'm still trying to figure that out. Sitting in God's grave, what does that mean, right? Not fully understanding why or when and how. And throughout all this ordeal, one thing that God has reminded me is perhaps sometimes we don't learn, not because it's not that we don't know, it's because we don't sit and listen, and ponder, and remember. And what God has taught me, and has continued to teach me, is what it means to ponder, wonder, wrestle. And I'm not sharing this again. In light of all the stuff that happened in the year 2020, there's so much that happened in our life. Many of us lost many things, not just lives of those we love, community, people, experiences. We have people dying, losing their livelihood, jobs. And I'm not trying to trivialize any of that. But what I want to emphasize as we think about this story that is mystery to us, that often gets attacked because it just doesn't seem to fully make sense to our rational human mind. What this story reminds us again and again and again is that no matter what craziness you and I are going through, in our confusion, not fully knowing why and what's of the world, perhaps what we are called to do 
is to sit, ponder, and treasure. And I believe that is the picture Mary is showing us. Mary fully doesn't know it here. Surely not fully understand how this incarnation works, how this death on the cross, resurrection works. She has to be discipled. She's not God. She's just like us. She has to learn. She has to grow. She had to learn, understand, and won't fully understand until she gets to heaven, just like all of us. And this year, 2020, reminds us that we may fully not understand exactly what is happening, and our hope in the midst of that is not that when the calendar year changes, things will change. It's not having hope in who is in the office or who is not in the office. It's not only hope in the vaccine that is coming. All good things. But for the followers of Christ, the hope that you and I have, not only in this year alone, in the mysteries of life that you and I will go through, not just this year 2020, but the years that will come, the hope that you and I could have is not to figure all these things out, to give a rational response to that. But the way that we could have hope is to sit in God's grace, to ponder, to treasure, to know that our God is good God. Our God, who himself is, reveals himself to be in the scripture, is a loving God who loves us, who sent his son to take on full humanity so you and I can be rescued. That's the hope that I have. And that's the hope I believe we are called to have and testify to the world. And that defines our life after the events of Christmas. In Christ alone, we could have hope. Let's pray. Church, pray with me. Father, as we come on this last Sunday of 2020. Lord, there are many things in our life that is very difficult to understand and comprehend. Many things that we have doubts about and wonder, why would good God let all these things happen? And why would good God still not take things away? Why would good God let us suffer through all these things? And many questions abound in our hearts, even this morning, even life after joys of Christmas. And as we gather this morning, as we listen to the word, as we sing these praises, Lord, we don't fully, fully get it. But we fully rest in the fact that again, time and time again, the scripture reminds us that you are our good God who loves us, who works all things for those who have been called according to your purpose that God will never leave us, forsake us. There's nothing that could separate us from the love of our God. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's the hope, that's the promise that we hold on to as we face the new year that's coming, as we face new challenges, as we face difficulties, as we face uncertainties. We place our hope in our ultimate Savior, fully God, fully man, mysteriously present together 
for our sake, for the glory of God. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.